better tight end hair calling a game? Greg Olson, Jason Witten. Me. My hair is real. There it is. There My it hair is. is real. Hey, everybody. What's up? Trey Wingo here. Welcome into season six of Half Forgotten History. Season six. It's been a remarkable journey sharing the stories of so many great athletes with you, and we're going to continue to do it. And season six kicks off with a bang. Not only was our first guest a great player on the field, he has turned into one of the best broadcasters calling games for Fox. Longtime Panthers tight end Greg Olson kicks off season six, episode one, talking about his rise from the U to being a stalwart in Carolina and how Peyton Manning is not his favorite quarterback because he took the Super Bowl from him and now to his smooth transition to being one of the best analysts calling games for Fox on NFL. Please enjoy this episode with Greg Olson. All right, let's start with an easy question for you. How much do you hate Peyton Manning? <laughs> Starting with the hard-hitting stuff right <laughs> off the jump. I actually really like Peyton Manning, although he did steal a Super Bowl from me. He got me in Super Bowl 50, his swan song. He got us. I, I don't know. I still think if we play them 10 times, I think we win more than we lose. Well, that that was such a strange year, and we'll get into much much more of that later. But, yeah, like – it, it's so funny. I, I always, this is why I have a thing. Okay. And I, I'm sure you, I'm hoping you feel the same way. Wins are not a quarterback stat to me. They don't exist because Peyton Manning, people change their dynamic of Peyton because he won a second Super Bowl with Denver. And he was the, you know, there's a 53 man roster. He was the 48th best Bronco that day. You, you know what I mean? And yeah. but suddenly, Oh, he won a second ring and now he's different. No, no, no. Wins are not a quarterback stat. They're a team stat. Well, he, I'll tell you, he was, just good enough that day. I mean, his his career is obviously incredible, and now he's kind of taken the broadcasting world by storm. I mean, what can't the guy do? But, uh, yeah. you know, that day we just – we struggled. We really hit our peak in the NFC Championship, and for whatever reason, that day just we were rolling. You know, two weeks earlier we had Arizona at our place in the NFC Finals, and everything we did worked, and we scored 40-something points on – I think what was either the first or the second best defense in the league. Um, you know, we played the top three defenses that year. We played Seattle, we played Denver, and we played uh, Arizona. I think those three teams were at least in the top five. I think the Panthers were one of them. So, I mean, uh, defense was definitely the calling card that year. And we just we played really well against Seattle, scoring 30 at halftime, 40-something next week. And then we just couldn't get out of our own way. A lot of turnovers. We sucked in the Super Bowl. We <laughs> yeah, sucked. We, I, I, I don't want to bring up bad memories. We'll get we'll get more into that a little bit later. But let's let's start with the beginning of your journey. I forgot you started at Notre Dame. Yeah, so I signed with Notre Dame at a high school actually, yeah. and uh, I had an older brother that was one class ahead of me, and he was a quarterback and a big recruit, and he had signed there um, for Tyrone Willingham's first class. So my older brother actually committed to three different quarterbacks he he committed um originally and then that coach was fired for for O'Leary and then remember the O'Leary yeah. like lied oh, on his resume application. yeah the resume um, yeah so then when O'Leary got fired they hired Tyrone Willingham so my brother stayed through all of those coaching changes um he went there so then the class behind him was mine and I had always loved Miami from the beginning Miami is where I always felt the most at home and it just felt like it resonated the most with me 
But, um, you know, at the same time, I really thought Notre Dame was cool and the allure of what it would be like to play with my brother at such a traditional, you know, such a historic kind of institution. And, um, you know, just going to watch him as a freshman just felt it would have been cool for my family to, to go play together. And I got on campus right after my high school graduation in 2003. And I was in the Miami campus about four months later, right before school started, <laughs> I had transferred. So I, I made it from like June to say like late August. <laughs> so I didn't make it very long. Well, that's that's the nice time to be there better than December and January and February in South Bend. Yeah, so if you're going yeah, to be there for four months, those are the four months to be there. Yeah, South, South Bend in February and January is not uh, is not what you're looking for. Yeah, it's not it's not Coral Gables for no, lack of a better no. term. No, I, I couldn't have gone from one polar opposite to the other. I was about to say in every way, right? Like the the, the in, in a lot of ways, the defining sort of college rivalry the for the late '80s and early '90s was Notre Dame and Miami, and here you are sort of ticking both boxes. Yeah, I, I always say, and I don't know this to be an official stat. I I don't I must be one of. I can't imagine many people who've worn both uniforms. Now, granted, I never yeah. played in a game, but I don't know. There can't be many people out there. I should have someone look into this, but I don't know how many people have worn the Notre Dame helmet and the Miami helmet in one career. So I, I always take credit that I'm the only one. I don't know whether that's true or not, but at least that's the story I tell people. Listen, in this day and age, run with it until it someone says otherwise. Until someone accuses me of being wrong, yeah. it's fact. Throw it out there. Um, so you were there at Miami when it was like the tight end place, right? It was a factory for tight ends. Yeah. So when I was getting recruited was like right on the tail end of Shockey. So Jeremy Shockey had kind of taken the country by storm. He had gotten drafted. Coincidentally enough, I grew up outside of New York city, right down okay. from MetLife stadium at the time, giant stadium at the Meadowlands where Shockey had gotten drafted. So Shockey's first year, first and second year was as I was graduating high school. So he had played at Miami when I was a younger player, went down there for some high school camps as a freshman and sophomore in high school. Shockey was the biggest thing in college football, especially at tight end. He gets drafted in the first round to New York, right down the street from where I was playing high school ball. Um, so Miami just, you know, before him was Bubba. And then at the time I was coming out of high school, my senior year was Kellen Winslow Jr., who was a potential Heisman Trophy finalist and, you know, eventual first round pick. So that was kind of the the era of the tight end, not you know, at Miami especially, but really right. just across the country. I mean, Jason Witten was my host when I went to Tennessee. I mean, it was just that was this really the start of college in the NFL having a little bit more of a glamour position of the tight end. Yeah. And did you always love football? Because I know you did a lot of other stuff in high school. You were, you were a sprinter, you did a lot of yeah. track. Was football your was always your first love? Yeah. So, so my dad was my high school football coach. So he coached okay. at the high school that all my, my, I have two brothers. We all played for my dad, um, just at a public high school in North Jersey, a really good program that he ran for 27 years or something. So that's all we knew, you know, so growing up, well, everybody else was going to the giants tailgates on Sunday and going to, you know, Rutgers and Penn state games on Saturday afternoons. We were watching my dad's team as kids. We'd watch my dad's team play on Saturday on Friday night, then we'd play our youth football games on Saturday morning. And then we'd spend the afternoon scouting with my dad and his staff, local high school football games. So high school football was really all we knew growing up. You know, those were the players that we idolized. Those were the teams that we loved. That's where we spent the majority of our time in the fall was with my dad and his team. So we just grew up around the game. 
We were in the locker rooms. We were the ball boys, the water boys. And we just all wanted to one day play on his varsity team. And um, one of the coolest experiences I've had in my life was playing for my dad, winning the state championship my senior year, kind of growing up watching that program and then being able to graduate and you know be a team captain and whatnot is is something that has made such an impact on everything I've done. So football is just, since the day I was born, football was kind of just what we were exposed to. Yeah, same for me, except I sucked at it. So that, <laughs> that that's the only difference. Like, I always loved football. I was just terrible at it, which is the only real difference between the two of us. Yeah. Um, but I, I, think, I think we need to give New Jersey high school football a little love here because when people talk about great states in high school football, it's the same thing. Florida, California, Pennsylvania, Texas – New Jersey cranks out NFL players. It does. And I, and I think in the, the argument I would have always with the guys down in Miami and Florida, my wife's from Florida, so I got to hear it from her too, yeah. uh, is we had really good top-level players. Like our best players were very good, highly recruited nationally. We just didn't have as many. You know, we would have the, the top, you know, few handful of guys that were national recruits and whatnot, but Texas, California, Florida, you know, they could have – 50 of them, you know, we might have 10 to 20. So it really wasn't that we didn't have that high level, high level player. Cause we did, we just didn't necessarily have as many as some of the other States, you know, the ones that you mentioned, you know, across the country that just had us on sheer volume. So when you got to, obviously you were highly recruited because Notre Dame and Miami came calling. Was, was there a, was there a moment at Miami when you thought I really might be able to do this at the next level? Was there one play, one game, one practice? You know, my experience at Miami was really a, a mixed bag, um, you know, early when I first got there. So I had transferred from Notre Dame. So I was ineligible. So I was on the scout team as a as a freshman, which was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I redshirted, kind of learned, grew, grew up, matured a little bit. You know, I had never really done anything outside of northern New Jersey. So going down to South Florida and playing with a whole different type of athlete was a was a great experience for me, but it was eye opening. And um you know, I'm breaking the huddle on the scout team and I'm looking across at the starting defense and there's what would go on to be eight first round picks. I mean, you got John <laughs> Vilma, um, Antrell Roll, Vince Wilfork, DJ Williams, Kelly Jennings, Sean Taylor. I mean, all these guys are on one defense and I'm this 18 year old little skinny freshman from New Jersey trying to <laughs> be the tight end from Virginia Tech or the tight end from Wake Forest or whatever. And uh, I remember calling my dad after the first couple of practices and I was like, dad, I, I love it down here. I mean, it's awesome, but I, I don't know if I'm ever going to be good enough to play. I mean, these guys are incredible. And, you know, he's like, just, you know, hang in there. Just you're a freshman. That's part of the process. Just keep going. Right. And eventually you'll have your opportunities. And when they come, make the most of it. And, and that's really what happened in my red shirt freshman year. I was the backup player to Kevin Everett, another guy who was drafted, played a long time until he suffered a tragic neck injury. neck injury, and thankfully he's doing well. But um, he was the starter above me when Winslow left. So I got like the two tight end as a redshirt freshman and played a little bit, caught a few touchdowns, had a decent year. And then the following year took over as the starter. And that's when I really started to see and got the recognition and got the reputation around the country and around the team. Like, all right, this guy could be our next tight end. And uh, those were big shoes to fill. You know, those yeah. those were big shoes and those were big personalities, you know, Shockey and Winslow. Kevin Everett was a little more subdued, but he was probably the best athlete of all of them. And, um, you know, it, it, I think probably that 
that first year starting, so I was a redshirt sophomore, I said, you know, I, I can do this. You know, I can compete with the Florida States of the world. I can go out there and, you know, I, I can – my first game actually against Florida State and is up in Florida State at Doak Walker Stadium. And uh, we lost, but I had – I dropped the first two passes they threw to me. And I always use this story because it's kind of like what kick-started my career. I, the first two balls they threw to me, I dropped. I got off to a terrible start, and then I just caught fire. And I ended the day, my first ever start with like 130 yards on eight catches. Every ball they threw me from that point on, I caught and went, we ended up losing the game. I never ended up having a better game. And my, that was my high of receptions, my first ever game. <laughs> and I never beat it again. So here I am. I'm like, I'm the starter. This is going to be easy. This is going to be every week. I went on and started the next couple of years. Never had a game even remotely close to as good as that one, but I think that game said like, all right, against the top players in the country, I can, you know, I can compete and, and do this at a high level. Yeah. I, I got to ask just how intimidating was Sean Taylor as oh. an 18 year old freshman? Like was, was out of all those guys. And th those were some dudes. Okay. Let's be clear. But Sean Taylor was at a different level. Yeah. He, he's the best football player I've ever seen played against whether on my team or the other team. I mean, just a tragic story in all sense of the word, but his size, his speed, his physical qualities, but then just his attitude, his toughness, his relentlessness. I mean, it was in practice and you had to make sure you were careful because if he got the opportunity, he was going to kill you. You know, we, <laughs> we all saw the, the highlight of him hitting the punter in the Pro Bowl. Yeah. Pro he Bowl. had no, yeah. yeah, he had no off switch, right? Yeah. Whether it was an NFL game, a college game, a practice, a Pro Bowl, it didn't matter. Like there was one speed, there was one level of intensity and that was just Sean. And he was a quiet guy. I didn't know him that well. You know, I was a freshman his last year at Miami, so we didn't spend a ton of time together. But just being around him, he was a unique, unique player. And it's just a shame we never got to see, you know, what the rest of his career would have looked like, the rest of his life would have looked like for that matter. But um, he was the best football player I've ever been around. Yeah, Ryan Clark has told me so many stories about Sean. and uh, He's incredible. He, he, he's Yeah, he's just – he's. He, he was just at a different level on every level that he ever played at. Yep. Um, okay, so you you sneak into the, the the end of the first round in the 2007 draft, and the draft is such a thing now, right? Like, I've, look, I've been doing the draft since 2000, so I, yeah. I've seen it grow into this, like, spectacle. That's what it is now. What was your draft day experience like? What were you hearing? What were you thinking? So what we were hearing was kind of all over the map. Um, <clears throat> so, I, you know, there was teams all over. So Carolina happened to be one of them. Uh, they were they were at like 14 and then the Jets were in the 20s. I want to say they were they were 25 or 23, something around there. So I took a visit to to the Jets. Mangini was the coach. Um, so went out to New Jersey and and did or at the time, I guess they were in Long Island and, um, you know, visited them and did that whole thing. So we were kind of all over the map. We knew the Bears were in play, but they were 31. They had just lost the Super Bowl. So we were kind of all over. We didn't really know the, the Bengals came down and worked out with me. Um, they were probably like 18, like right in the, right in the top 20. So we weren't really sure I had left school early with a year to go, um, and just said, uh, my goal is to be the number one tight end picked. And whether that's in the first round or the second round, I can't control that. But if, if team is going to take a tight end, my goal is that it's going to be me. And I just went into the whole process with that attitude. And, and I was actually the last year where the draft picks were like 20 minutes in between. Oh, yeah. And then, I remember. so I was picked 31st. So I, I think that that in those days, the draft was on Saturday. So it yep. started at noon. I want to say I was picked 
like right before six o'clock Eastern time. So we were down in yeah. South Florida, um, had all my family and everything down there for the week. And we stayed at a nice hotel on South Beach and, and made a week of it. But you're right. It wasn't the hoopla that we see now. They only brought a handful of guys to New York. I didn't go to New York. They just brought, you know, Calvin Johnson and Adrian Peterson, Joe Thomas. I don't know if he went or not, but he was a top pick. No, he we went a fishing. Real, he went he fishing. Have, yeah, that's right. He did the, yeah. that was the fishing story. Jamar, uh, Jamarcus Russell was the first overall pick. Ugh. So we had an interesting class. We had some really big guys and some low ones. And then funny enough, the two teams that I thought I had the best chance, Carolina, coincidentally enough, and, and the Jets, they swapped picks. So the Jets traded up and took Darrell Revis at 14, which turned out to be a great pick. Good idea. And then the Panthers traded back with them into the 20s, and they ended up taking my college teammate, John Beeson. So now the, the draft is going along, and I'm sitting here, and I'm like, shit, I'm not, I might not go in the first round. And surprisingly enough, I had very little contact with the Bears. You know, yeah. I knew one of the scouts who was a friend of mine from Notre Dame, and he kind of, you know, they didn't spend a lot of time. I don't know if it's because they didn't think I'd be there or I don't know what the circumstances were. I had never met Jerry Angelo, all but one little meeting at the combine in the train station. Same with with Lovey at the at the time, who was the coach. And lo and behold, um, I want to say like the Chargers were 30th and they were on the clock. And I got the call. But on TV, the Chargers were about to pick and then they kind of show me. Right. on ESPN, like on the phone. So everyone thought I was being picked there, but they had gates. And then of course it wasn't until the next pick, it was the bears calling to say they were going to select me at 31. And, um, you know, we were psyched. They were just coming off losing in the super bowl, but having a great year, they had a really veteran presence, you know, veteran team with some really big time players and great city, a great market. I was fired up to go there. Yeah, and you went to Chicago at a really interesting time. Like you said, they just lost Super Bowl Forty One, and the whole thing that year, which you probably didn't experience, because you know they kept winning, and Rex Grossman was just playing okay. Lovey Smith would say every week, "Hey, we're nine and two. Rex is our quarterback. We're in first in the division." You know, it was yep. always this precursor. Yeah, yeah, he's still our quarterback. I know we're doing okay. So yeah. you get there the year after the Super Bowl, and then that's when the Jay Cutler Chicago experience sort of began yeah uh, you guys sort of bonded right away right yeah so a couple of years so we so we went like a year or two i played with rex um who started out and then we had kyle orton and then we had uh, brian greasy so yeah. those three guys for my first so 2007 to 2008 those three guys were kind of in and out shuffling around sharing the position i want to say orton kyle and greasy probably had more starts rex had a few injuries and whatnot so but those three guys kind of shared the position and then in 2009 like you said we trade for cutler and me and jay hit it off early we we got along well we both kind of saw the game the same way and we had some again it was a limited sample size for only two yeah. seasons playing together but we had some we had some good success you know his first year there um I probably had 60 something catches. We just missed out on the playoffs. And then they, and then that's really what changed my career. They end up firing almost all of the offensive staff. Lovey does. Yep. They bring in Mike Martz. And then in the 2010 season, obviously they bring in Mike Martz and change the system around. We end up going to the NFC championship. I remember. Um, and then shortly thereafter in that off season, they had tried to trade me prior to the season with new England. It fell through. And then after the NFC Championship season, during right out of the lockout of 2011, 
in training camp, I got uh, I got traded down to Carolina, and that was the end of my Chicago days. Okay, but before we do move on to that, I mean, the Jay Cutler experience yeah. is sort of a thing, right? Like it is. Oh, it, it is. I mean, like, did you know or think that he would be doing what he's doing now based on how you guys related no. when you played? No, but I'll tell you, I I always liked Jay. We we always yeah. got along. The thing about Jay was you had to just kind of take him for what he was. The the one thing you could count on is he was consistent. Yeah. You knew the things he didn't like. You knew where he stood on everything. You knew he didn't like people bother. Like you just knew where he stood and you might not have always liked it. It might sometime have been a little awkward, but you could at least respect the fact that he was the same always. Yeah. And what you saw was what you got. And, but as far as the two of us, we had a good relationship off the field. We, you know, at the time I was married, by the time I didn't have any kids and we'd spend time together downtown and hang out. So we had a good time together and, uh, you know, obviously had some limited success when we were together on the field, but yeah, I, I had no problems playing with Jay. I know at other stops, people have, you know, say what they want. And I'll tell you, he's a, he's a funny dude when you know him and you kind of crack the shell, uh, people kind of got an insight into that when they saw a little bit of that reality show he did. And now with his podcast, but yeah, me and Jay, we, I had no issues with Jay. We always got along well. And, uh, you know, we haven't kept in touch much, you know, since those days, but at the time we played together, you know, we were pretty close. Yeah. Is the don't care at the urinal story true? That's real. I think that's, <laughs> that's definitely my favorite. That's my favorite Jay Cutler story of all it's, time. It's like the it's the famous. That's like the notorious Chicago story of him. Right. And uh, yeah, he he just really he wasn't in the business of caring what other people really thought. He was true to himself. Said what he thought. Felt how he felt. And you can you can kind of respect it. Yeah. For those that don't know, the story is that Jay's at a bar or a restaurant somewhere in the men's room taking a leak and some fan comes up to him and starts saying, hey, I think you're the greatest. And he just yells out, don't care as he's sitting there taking a leak. Yeah, while he's taking a leak. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's it's like, I should have known then that we're going to get the Jay Cutler now away from football from that story. I want to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll pick it up with uh, Greg Olson here in Half Forgotten History about the turn in his career and the incredible success that he had as a member of the Carolina Panthers. Coming right back with Greg Olson. This podcast is presented by Visa, a network working for everyone. Overcoming the odds, rewriting the playbook, delivering under pressure. The MVPs of small business lead their teams to victory all year long. Visa is proud to provide playmakers everywhere with more tools to help grow their business and help them achieve even greater success. Because the more we can empower, the more we all win. Visa, a network giving small businesses tools to grow. All right, back with uh, Greg Olson, tight end turned broadcaster now on this episode of Half Forgotten History. So you mentioned before the break, you traded uh, to Carolina uh, right before the lockout or during the lockout of the 2011 season. What were your initial thoughts when they told you we're, we're moving you? Yeah, so a year earlier, I got called. So it was the 2010 draft. So it was around April. You know, So yeah, so April. <clears throat> so I get called in to Jerry Angelo's office, and they tell me that they have a trade on the table for the next day. This was like during OTAs. He's like, tomorrow, just so you're not caught off guard, we have a potential trade lined up with New England. If a player they're targeting – gets picked they had at the time they had three second round picks in that draft they had no first yeah. round pick and they were targeting Gronkowski and there was rumors about whether Gronkowski was going to get drafted in the first round or not and if he was he'd be unavailable obviously for them to pick him and they were right. going to take one of those picks and trade 
and I was going to go to Chicago. So Jerry calls me in and tells me to my, you know, sits me down and to his credit, gives me the heads up. Well, obviously we all know the history. Gronk did not go in the first round, got selected by them in the second they called and the trade was off. So I went, so Jerry brought me back into his office on, on Monday and he's like, that was it. I don't want to entertain this the whole season. You're on our team. We need to find a way to make this work with you and Mike. And we need to figure out a way to, for you to be involved in the offense. And I said, well, Jerry, me being involved in the offense isn't my doing. Yeah, I've been, I, was your leading, <laughs> I was your leading receiver last year. Like, you guys know yeah. I can do this. The offensive coordinator got hired. And at his first press conference, when no one asked, someone asked him, like, how are you going to get Olsen involved, whatever? He said, I don't value the tight end position. If they don't get in there and block, I might Thanks, as well play coach. with and I was like, I never even met the guy before, and he's crushing me. So, I mean, don't pin this on me that I'm the one yeah. sitting here saying this isn't going to work. So, anyway, we may, we end up having a good season. I think I earned a lot of his trust, and I wasn't as productive as I had been, but we had a good season as a team. So, I thought all that was behind us. I was going into the last year of my, of my contract. The, the lockout kind of made the offseason weird. We had no contact with the coaches or whatnot right up until camp started, um, like, at middle or end of July. So I show up to training camp. We had to take physicals. And then the next morning was going to be the first team meeting to kick off camp. So I get there, um, do my physical. Everything's fine. Check into my dorm at, at Olivet Nazarene, which was this small little college that we used to go yep. to. And I get we were at a movie with some of the guys. We went to dinner and went to a movie just hanging out. And I got a call from my agent at like 10 o'clock. He's like, hey, I need you to call me. I'm like, oh, I'll call you when I get out. I'm in a movie. He's like, you need to call me right now. So I yeah, stepped outside good. and sure enough, he's like, I just talked to Jerry and they're going to open, open the door to trade you. Um, they're not going to sign you back after this season. So if they can get somebody to trade for you, they'll let you go a year early. And I was like, damn, like that happened yeah. fast. Like here I was thinking <laughs> I was going to get a new contract. You know, I just got off the NFC championship. You know, I had a, I had a good play, you know, I had a great run in the playoffs, had some good games, thought I put all that behind me. But anyway, long story short, the next morning by like noon. So I had lunch with Lovey, I had breakfast with Lovey the next morning. And by noon, I packed up my, I packed up my dorm room. I got traded to Carolina, drove home, packed up my house, left and never stepped foot back in my house again. And uh, was off to Charlotte. I'd never been there before and uh, started a new adventure. Well, listen, you, you went there at a really interesting time because yeah. obviously Cam was the number one overall pick of the draft that year. Uh, and you know, that I look, I remember the discussion about Cam going into that uh going into that draft. Okay, we know what he did at Auburn. Is that gonna work at the NFL level? And I what I think the first game he threw for four hundred yards and ran all over the field was like, eh, I think this is gonna work. Yeah. I you know, and it's funny that coincidentally, it's where he won the national title down in Arizona and then made his debut in the NFL against the Cardinals, albeit we lost, but he set yeah. which I still think is the record. For the rookie, most rookie passing yards, it was like 415 yards or something. And then we ended up losing. The next week, we played Green Bay at home. And I want to say he threw for 400 again. Yep. We lost, but I think he went back-to-back -back 400. Or if the second week wasn't up the top of my head, I want to say he was pretty close. So when we got off to a fast start. Granted, we were 0-2. But, you know, when I got traded there, Ron was just hired, who I didn't know. So he was let go prior to me getting to Chicago. He was the coordinator of the Bears. Right. Lovey let him go. So he was in San Diego at the Chargers at the time in San Diego. Correct. Um, when I got drafted to Chicago. So, But all I had heard from Erlacher and Briggs and Peanut Tillman was that this guy was the best. 
He's like, this guy, we love him. We miss him. They called him Chico. They're like, we miss Chico. He was awesome, whatever. So when I got traded and I was at camp with those guys, they all came up to me and they're like, you're going to love Ron Rivera. He's the best. You're going to a great place. And here I am. Like, I don't know Ron. I don't know a lot of the staff at all. They were the worst team in the league. They just drafted, to your point, an unknown quarterback who, yes, was fantastic in college for one year, but we didn't know a lot about him. So I'm like, man, I just got done playing in the NFC Championship at home in Soldier Field against the Packers. And now I'm going to Carolina. I don't know anything about the market, you know, whatnot. And as things typically happen in life, it was the best thing that ever happened to me, both personally and professionally. The journey we went on from that year in 2011 through the next eight, nine years was it was so cool to just be a part of kind of building something and seeing how high we could take it and just was able to play with so many great guys and so many great coaches. It was a, you know, and this is still home for us. So, I mean, that trade at the time, I was so pissed and I was so like angry at Chicago and and thought that was going to be my whole career. And lo and behold, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, everyone has something in their career that they're, they're proudest of, you know, like whether it was, you know, a game or whatever, I'm looking at your resume and just in terms of football, and I have to imagine the idea that for nine straight years you played in 16 straight, all 16 games has yeah. to be way up there for you at the position that you played. Yeah, and the irony was at the end of my career, my the label was that I was always hurt. You know, I, I broke foot. my foot those two. I broke my foot those two years. Yep. But outside of that, I had a. a you know, you just, I had a great run. So I missed the first two games, my rookie year, I I banged my knee in a preseason game, my rookie year and sprained my, I tore my PCL in my left knee. So I missed my first two games of my rookie year. And then I played the remaining 14. And then, like you said, so from 2007 through 2016, I played every single game. And that was always my calling card. You know, I was never the fastest guy. I was never the biggest guy, but I was able to be productive because my volume was always going to be more than everybody else. I was going to play every game and I was going to play 99% of the snaps. You know, at the end of the year, when they, when you would get like the snap breakdowns of other tight ends, you know, Witten was up there over a thousand. There was a handful of guys that were in that a thousand to 1100. And then everybody else was in like the seven, six, 700. And that was something I always kind of wore as with pride. You know, I was on the field every snap. Doesn't mean they were all perfect. It doesn't mean I was great at everything. But I took a lot of pride being out there. And it was a big reason that was a big part of my game was just play after play. I could wear you down. I'd be the last man standing. Like that was a big reason why I was able to keep up with a lot of guys who were just better than me physically was because in the fourth quarter on play 70, I was better than that guy was on play 70. And that was the only way I could find an advantage was being durable and being always being available to play. And then the irony was in that 2017 year when I broke my foot and missed my first game in 10 years, I never really could get it back. You know, I, I came back from surgery, finished that season. Then the first game of 2018, I broke it again. I remember just, seeing that. I remember from that seeing point it. On, it, 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 it broke my heart to see that because I know yeah. how hard you had worked to get back there. And, and on the first game back to see it happen again. Yeah. The, you know, the, the crazy part, you know, playing tight end and the hits I took and the different pound and all that, I, this little bone on the outside of my foot, this little fifth metatarsal bone ended up really being the start of the end of my career. And we tried everything. I had two surgeries on it until I finally got it right. Uh, bone graft and 
we tried all different types of therapies for my feet. And then I was, I ruptured both my um, plantar fascia, like the lining on the bottom of my feet. So it just, that was kind of, my feet were really what failed me. The, the rest of my body, even sitting here today is fine. I got good knees. I got good ankles. I got good backs and shoulders. I got all the big stuff. Those little bones, that little bone in the side of my foot is what ended up <laughs> ending my career. A toe ended Deion Sanders' career. Like people don't yeah. understand when your foot's messed up, like you step on your foot and you put all your weight on your foot yeah. on every play. Like there's yeah. no way around it. You know what I mean? You can't, you can't dance around it. So I, w I don't want to dwell too much on no, the No, but it's real. But it's part of the story. Yeah. It's all part it of is. the story. Um, the, the most amazing thing to me about the 2015 season for you guys was the fact that you had the highest scoring offense in the league that year and your big play guy, Kelvin Benjamin, missed the entire year with a torn ACL. Yeah, so we're playing, we're, we're practicing against the Dolphins in training camp that year and Kelvin's running around in one-on-ones and he just goes down. So the previous year was his rookie year, 2014, and he had over a thousand yards. Both of us went over a thousand. That was the first time I went over a thousand yards and that was, he was obviously a rookie. So getting we you know getting him back, we felt really optimistic about the season. We thought we'd be good, and and Kelvin was such a good young player. And then he goes down in training camp in a in a crossover kind of joint practice with Miami, and uh, you know we were like, man, we're where are we going to find this production? How are we going to replace a thousand yards? You know, Ted Ginn was a really good player for us. Devin Funches was a rookie. Um, Jericho Cotchery, who's one of my all-time favorite teammates. Jericho Cotchery. Everyone He's, loves playing with Jericho Cotchery. He was awesome. Um, we had another, I want to say, rookie, Philly Brown. He was in his either he was either a rookie or in his second year. So anyway, we had a bunch of good players, but that really hadn't done a lot. You know, Ted was older, so he had he had shown what he can do. But the rest of these guys were all young. You know, we had a we had yeah. good running back with with Stu and Tolbert. Oh, we had a really good offensive line. They were tough, they would fight. And they were consistent. You know, Ryan Khalil obviously was an all-pro. We had two young guys with Trey Turner and Norwell. Michael Orr was such a shame because his career kind of ended fast, but he was incredible. We had Remmers at the right tackle. We had a really good team. And, you know, losing Kelvin was a huge blow, but we really all bought into the notion of, yes, Cam got a lot of the attention. He was the MVP, whatnot. But there was not a lot of ego about who got the ball, who got the touchdowns, who got the credit. And I know a lot of teams say that because they feel like they have to. But the reason that team was so good, considering we didn't have a lot of like star names like to the common fan, right. was because that was the truth. Our reality yeah. was our best players were our hardest workers. Our best players were our most selfless. And the idea of everyone buying into the same thing. I In all my years of sports, I had never been around anything that had worked as well as it did that year. Well, you know, outside of the Super Bowl, which we'll dwell on again briefly, I promise. The, the the game, the game that everybody remembers that year was the game against the Giants, and you know the whole Odell Beckham, Josh Norman yeah. thing. Like that was nuts. Now, wasn't was wasn't there a uh, there was a there was an inactive player, I think, for the Panthers who didn't. He, like walk on the have a baseball up. bat, a uh, baseball yeah. bat on the sidelines. Was yeah. that what it was? He yes, I remember that. He walked out with a bat because I guess it was like the defensive backs like mantra. I don't remember the exact specifics, but it said something on the bat. But now yeah. that you say it, yes, I do remember that. He walked out that with whole a bat. day was. I don't. I I don't. To be honest with you, I don't know. Those guys yeah. were a little nuts. Um, you know, Josh and 
and and Roman uh, Harper, they 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 played with an edge, and and they just they were everything we needed them to be. They they set an edge that in our defense that year, I want to say, was one of the top you know defense in the league. Thomas Davis and obviously yep. Luke Shaq was a rookie. Shaq you know Shaq Thompson was a rookie, and he was our third linebacker. That shows how talented we were there. Um, but yeah, that Giants game was wild, and we were we were in New York. I want to say we were up like twenty eight nothing. Yeah, and, and they then they just started back. creeping back. And next thing you know, we were in a tie ball game. We had the ball to go down to win it. Um, Cam and you were still under, you still had an undefeated season at that point. Oh yeah, we were still undefeated. Yeah, yeah. we had just beaten um, the week before. We had just beaten Atlanta, like thirty something nothing. I mean, we were rolling. Yeah. So we so then that made us so the Giants game. So the week after the Giants game, we ended up then losing at Atlanta. Yep. So we went to Christmas that year undefeated. So we were 14 and 0. We went to Atlanta the week the game after Christmas and we we got upset by Atlanta who we had just beat 2 weeks earlier at home by 30. That was Dan Quinn's first year. And then we uh so that made us 14 and 1. We came home, we ended the season against Tampa and we ended the season 15 and 1, obviously the number 1 seed. So yeah, we were we were an upset away from Atlanta from being undefeated going into the Super Bowl. Listen, it's always different when you're in it, but like watching that game and watching Odell and Josh just go absolutely bonkers. How aware were you playing that that was sort of playing out? Because you obviously see it in a linear fashion. We're all watching it from a treetop view as, yeah. as you do now calling games. So it's a totally different look. How aware were you of how nuts the things were going on between those two guys. You know, I think we knew something was going on, right? We saw the penalties. We saw the, you know, breaking guys up after the play. And so I think we knew they were going at each other. It wasn't until I saw some of the replays. I didn't see like the one show. I think Odell was suspended, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Odell got suspended. The one where he came from like 40 yards away and just hit Josh in the side of the head. It looked like he knocked him out. Like, I didn't see all of that live, right? We're on the bench and we're doing our thing on offense and we're catching it through the backs of everybody standing in front of us. We knew that they were at each other the whole game. I don't think any of us realized how physical and violent and after the whistle, I mean, they were truly headhunting, like fighting each other in the middle of a football game. It was, I, I can't say I ever remember anything that lasted that long. Right. Guys just right. play after play after play until finally, I think both coaches took him out of the game or at least for a moment. And then um, yeah, it took Josh a couple a week or two to kind of get over. That was an emotionally draining experience for him. Um, I know Odell was suspended. I don't think Josh was, but it was a it was that was a and then the way it came come back and win the game. I think Gano kicked a however long field goal to, to win at the end. That was the fact that we were even in that close of a game after being up 28 nothing was a bit ridiculous. That was one of the strangest games and it was strangest wild. things I've, I've ever seen in, in covering the game for a long time. So, yep. like you said, you roll through the playoffs, you get to Super Bowl 50, and you guys had to feel like you were the best team all year. And, you know, the whole drama with Peyton that year, you know, you know, he was a little hurt, couldn't get out, got benched for the Broctagon, you know. And, <laughs> I, there's so many nicks for Brock Osweiler. I can't go through them yeah. all. Brock me Amadeus, you know, it's, uh, but anyway, you had to think we got these guys, right? We felt really good about it. You know, I, I we knew that they were really talented on defense. We knew that that yeah. defense, Wade Phillips, they had been good all year. Um, 
and they were good everywhere, right? Their their secondary was super talented. Their front, obviously, Von Miller had a great day. But they had other guys up there front on their front that were really good. Their linebackers, they had Danny Trevathan. I mean, they had they were just a really good, fast, aggressive defense. So we knew that offensively we were going to carry the burden, but we had just gone through a gauntlet of playing yeah. some of the best defenses in the league. You know, we had played Seattle twice. We played them in the regular season and beat them there, then beat them first in the divisional round of the playoffs. Then obviously we played um you know, the Cardinals who had one of the best defenses again, and we scored 47 or 45 points or something. You beat them up. Yeah. So we knew we were tested as far as playing these, these really good teams. And I'll tell you, I, I never in a million years would have expected after how well we played all season. I, you know, we were the number one team, number one offense in the league. I, we, I never expected in a million years for us to go there and struggle like we did. And obviously it got off to a tough start. You know, Vaughn had the strip sack, I think, on our second possession to make it 10-0. You know, but then even after that, we settled back. Our our defense completely shut them down. I mean, they were were more inept on offense than we were. And we just – every time we started cracking, we we had a couple – I think we had a couple fumbles. I think we had like four turnovers. Yep. And we just – it was just one of those days where two weeks earlier – everything we did worked and this was one of those days that we just couldn't crack it and after as bad as it was we had the ball in the fourth quarter one touchdown and we'd take the lead I mean it was a one score game until the very end I think they got a late one after a turnover after the fumble but yeah as bad as we played our defense was so good that we were one and we would say that on the sideline we're like guys we've been shit we got one possession and we win they're not going to score yeah, they're not going to score. It was sixteen to ten, uh, and then the infamous Cam fumble. Did he die yep. for the ball? Should he have yep. dove in after? We don't need to revisit that. But that yeah. that changed the whole thing. And that was I, it. I will say this: Yeah, if Coney, if you guys want Coney Ely, was going to be the MVP of that game. He was Absolutely. everywhere. Coney Ely had the greatest game in Super Bowl history for a defensive yeah. player. Yeah, I mean, he had. I think he had a pick and three sacks. Is that right? Yeah, he was all something. over the place. It was insane. Yeah, was yeah. Coney, yeah. Coney was going to be. Wow, how things in the NFL can change. I mean, you talk about what yeah. a difference a career would be. It's, It was just one of those days that almost – we got back into the locker room and you almost were in the blur. Like you almost couldn't believe that after all that, it was over. Yeah. And we don't get – we don't get a best of five. We don't get to run it back. That's how it ended. It was, it was hard. It took us a while to get over that. I mean, that was such a magical year for it to end so abruptly and end kind of so anticlimactic. Yeah both teams were kind of inept on offense and it was really who was less shitty. It, <laughs> it was really a bad way to end what otherwise could have been a historically great season. Yeah. The two things I remember about that Super Bowl more than anything else from the Carolina perspective outside of Ely was Thomas Davis playing in that game with a yep. broken arm. Yep. Uh, and when he took the, when he took the brace off, I mean, his arm looked like it was the laces on a football. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the stitching was just unbelievable. And then you mentioned Josh, uh, just him like, all of it came out on the bench, just yeah. crying on uh, on the yeah. on the bench at the end. There's there's never there's never a way to, to sort of describe that to people. Like you know, if you're the losing team in the Super Bowl, like you need like you have some sort of deadly bacteria, and you need to get out of there, right? Because yeah. they want to have the con- the confetti fall and do all those, and they could not shove you guys off the field fast enough. I'll never forget it. And like I said, it was almost like an out of body experience because we ha- we were so good so consistent all year round all all year long 
like you almost were walking off the field like no no like we need to start over like yeah. that wasn't that was not the super bowl that is not what we just worked all year to get to like that was not the performance that this game deserved but as we all know it's a it's a very finite amount of time and you don't get a second shot at it you get one crack and it was devastating you know it it really was it was the culmination of a lot of work and the culmination of a long journey to to get that team to that level and the losing sucks of course no one wants to lose the part that really sucks the worst is that we didn't like if you went into that game and you just lost and that other team yeah. just outgunned you like you'd say hey tip your cap they beat us today right we were so bad like we didn't <laughs> even we didn't even like remotely play even yeah. average to give ourselves a chance. And I think that's the part that was really disappointing is like, we didn't even really give ourselves a chance to compete. We didn't give ourselves a chance and, you know, give Denver credit. They, they made the, you know, three or four plays that they needed to. And we didn't, yeah, well, it's funny. Like I, I got a lot of credit that year because I was the only one of all the people that ESPN pulled that predicted the, uh, predicted the, 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 Broncos to win by double digits and they're like, Oh, how did you know? I'm like, I picked the same score for every game every year. Like I just, so it's like, your it's fault. Ran- yeah, probably. I wish I would have known I mean, that like- before I said, I come on your show. I know. I'm withholding to make sure I get good guests, <laughs> but you know, they're like, how did you know? I'm like, I picked the same score for every game because picking scores of games is pointless. So I just, I just use the same score the whole time. Of course. Uh, so that was, that was kind of funny about that one. All right. Well, we take our second break here with Greg. We'll come back about, talking about how you sort of began to prepare for what you're doing now while you were a player. Uh, Back with Greg Olson on Half Forgotten History right after this. Hey, welcome into our new weekly segment, Trace Trends, presented by Caesar Sportsbook. Now, Caesar Sportsbook is the greatest sports betting app of all time, people. Why? Patience, I'm about to tell you, because Caesars makes everyone feel like an emperor. When you place your bets, win or lose, you earn more with Caesar Rewards. Dining, getaway, stays, so many perks. Now, let me explain what that means. You see, in our world, Caesar isn't the only emperor. You see, if you check the spelling, there is no apostrophe in Caesars. Why is that? It's because everyone who downloads the app is treated like an emperor. We are all Caesars. Caesar Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards, which means win or lose, you'll earn reward credits with every single wager. Redeem those credits for sports tickets, dining, getaways, and more. Presented for the people by Caesar Sportsbook. Here's a peek of what you can learn by watching Trey's Trends every week on the Caesar Sportsbook social media and YouTube channels. Since the league first expanded to the playoff format of 12 teams in 1990, at least four new clubs have reached the postseason every year. The playoffs this year will feature seven teams, seven that weren't in the tournament a year ago. The Cardinals, Cowboys, Patriots, Eagles, 49ers, and two teams that get this whole party started, the Bengals and the Raiders. Now, the Bengals opened as a six and a half point favorite over the Raiders, who can drink for free in Pittsburgh for a while. Either the Bengals or the Raiders will end a significant playoff drought with a win. The Raiders last won a playoff game during the 2002 season, which ended with a Super Bowl loss to the Bucs. For Cincy, it has been much, much longer. They have not won a playoff game since January of 1991. That's before texting even existed. They have lost eight straight postseason games while failing to cover in seven of them. When these two teams met in week 11 of the regular season, the Bengals won by 19 as two-point favorites. Joe Burrow only had 148 passing yards. That'll be tough to duplicate as he's getting that in a quarter these days, passing for 971 yards in his last two games. Find more of Trey's trends at Caesar Sports on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube with new episodes dropping every Friday. 
21 or older or 18 and older in D.C. must be physically present in Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Louisiana, Maryland, Michigan, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, or Washington, D.C. Sports betting is void in Georgia, Hawaii, Ohio, Utah, and other states where prohibited. Know when to stop before you start. If you have a gambling problem in Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, if you know someone that has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537, or in West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. In Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. Colorado, D.C., Nevada, call 1-800-522-4700. Call 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. In Iowa, call 1-800-BETS-OFF. Louisiana, call 1-877-770-STOP. In Michigan, call 1-800-270-7117. Tennessee, call or text TN Redline at 1-800-889-9789. In Virginia, call 1-888-532-3500. And now for the first time in New York, call 1-877-8-HOPE-NEW-YORK or text HOPE-NEW-YORK 467-369. Copyright 2022, Caesars Entertainment. All right, back with Greg Olson here on Half Forgotten History. Great tight end, now doing great work for Fox. And you finished your career in Seattle, but when you were in Seattle, and I think maybe the last couple of years in Carolina too, you started to prepare yourself for what you're doing now, calling football games. When did you know you wanted to do that? You know, I don't know if there ever was really a a moment where I was like, this is what I'm going to do when I was playing. You know, I I was never really a big believer in like having a plan B while I was playing. I always believed like, I'm a football player. I'm all in on this. If there's time for other things, great. But like, I'm not going to prepare for life after football until I get there. My plan was always to go until the wheels fell off. And then that kind of became like a weird omen because my wheels literally, literally fell off. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of interesting. But, you know, so I started just messing around doing some different TV stuff. And a lot of it was just like local regional work. Mm-hmm. I did some of the work with, you know, Fox Sports South and some of the other regional networks. I did some ESPN stuff and some stuff with with some of the other networks. Each year, I would do the combine with NFL Network and and go there. So I had kind of toyed around doing some little stuff here and there. Um, I, a guy that we had met, a buddy of mine who ended up becoming a friend out at Fox, said, "Hey, why don't when you're in LA, why don't you come over to the studio and just do a just like a broadcast audition, like behind the yeah. scenes? Nope, nope, nothing public facing, and just see if you like it." So we were out visiting. We were actually visiting Khalil out in Manhattan Beach. So while we were out there. This was probably like 2014, 15. And uh, so went over to the studio and lo and behold, which is actually funny, my current partner, Kevin Burkhart, who's incredible. Great. He and I knew each other when I was a high school football player. Kevin would just graduated from a college in my hometown where my mom actually went. And we met because he would call the local high school games for the AM, the AM uh, local radio station. So he would cover some of our playoff games and he was a young guy kind of up, you know, rising in the ranks of, of learning his craft as a journalist. And we just got to know each other casually back then. So now all these years later, they, he, they call him and they're like, Hey, you want to do a thing? They're like, yeah, who's, who's going to be my partner? They're like, you're going to do an audition with Greg Olson. He's like, I know. Greg Olson. <laughs> He's like, I used to call his high school games 10 years ago. And uh, so long story short, I went in, me and Kevin did an audition and it went well. So in 2017, as you said, um, on my bye week going into that season, Fox offered me the opportunity to join Kevin and at the time his partner, Charles Davis, and be a three-man booth on my bye week. And we went up and did Minnesota and the Rams. So I went and did that. So that was my first time 
doing like a live game. And I really enjoyed it. And it was great. And Kevin and Charles were just amazing. And Pam Oliver, who's also now my partner, was in that crew. And they were just great to me. And, and we had a really good experience. And then in 2019, they invited me back to do it again. So I did a game with Kenny Albert because they wanted to see me do it in a two-man booth. So me and Kenny called Giants and Cardinals, Kyler and Dan Daniel Jones's rookie year. So that was a fun game at, at the Meadowlands. So I just – I was – given opportunities to to try it out and along the way just kind of did some smaller things to build some experience and build my my reel a little bit and then i was just really fortunate that fox kind of took a chance and and gave me that platform as a current player and they were happy with how it went and then in 2020 so last year right before covid hit me and kevin burkhart did five of the xfl games and right. then shortly we were only going to do five and then the league ended up folding um the week after so the the five week xfl season with the five weeks that we called and it was just great that was my first experience doing it week in and week out like that week to week grind yeah. which i'm glad i did and um long story short after all that experience they were you know they believed in me enough to give me the opportunity that when i retired to to join kevin and pam what do you see about the game differently looking at it from this perspective as opposed to when you played you know when i was a player I would spend my whole week studying defenses, right? And at the end of the week, I would, I would have probably four or five tight ends that I really liked. And I would watch, you know, the chiefs with Kelsey and the Patriots with Gronk and, you know, in his prime with Witten. And I would pick a handful of teams that I knew were, were really keen on getting the ball to the tight end. And at, by Thursday or Friday, when I was done with my work, I would go watch those offenses mostly to watch the tight end and what they do with them and just steal little things about, see what the other guys around the league were doing that worked. But it really 90% of my time was on the defense. So now as a as a broadcaster, as I'm preparing for games, you're watching, of course, the defense, but now you're really studying the offenses much more in depth and personnel and scheme and who's doing what. So that that's been fun for me. It's it's more time consuming, right? Because instead of preparing for one team's defense, you're preparing for two teams' defenses and two teams' offenses. And then I tell the guys I watch a little of the special teams. I probably don't. <laughs> but um, don't tell the punters and the kickers that, no. um, you know, so it's just, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of film, but I enjoy it. I've enjoyed studying the offenses and then having a chance to talk to the different coordinators in production meetings and just kind of hearing how their brain works, hearing how they formulate a game plan, how they set up calls. Uh, I've really enjoyed that aspect of it. You've been really generous with your time, so I don't want to take up too much, but uh, I wanted to get this question in because I think it's very important. Okay. Better tight end hair calling a game. Greg Olson, Jason Witten. Me. My hair is real. There it is. There My hair is real. I there have it no, is. I, it's funny. I, I guess I, I, I don't know why. I guess people aren't used to seeing my hair brushed. Yeah. And I don't ever – and I always wear a hat because I never comb my hair. Yeah. Like the first time my wife saw me go on TV with my hair combed, she was like, who are you? <laughs> and you know you go especially the studio stuff you go in and they have like yeah. professional hair people and makeup oh, yeah. people and whatnot but on the road calling the game you have no one so like i get up in the morning and i shower and i hair you know probably don't have the hairline that i used to when i was 20 and i blow dry same I, you know i it's hard man it's hard being us yeah. you know you towel dry you you kind of i don't have a comb so i just kind of like fix it with my hands i put a little hairspray so it doesn't blow all over the place and i go to the game like i don't spend a lot of time worrying about it and um but people like on people lose their minds like you need a haircut you need a new stylist i'm like would you guys relax like i'm calling a football game like who cares yeah. what my hair looks like 
but yeah my hair my hair is not a wig and my hair i don't have hair plugs like i just have normal hair and i'm a almost 40 year old guy and it's the way it goes hold on to that like grim death because hey, and you know what? when that day thing. comes it's a good thing yeah i mean whatever it is what it is i'm here to talk ball man i'm not here to be a model there you go. But guys right, well, like us could do both, obviously. Exactly. Well, sure. I mean, look at this face. I mean, uh, listen, Greg, it's been great. I always lo I loved your career, and I love what you're doing with Fox. So continued success, and, and thanks for being on the show, okay? I appreciate it, man. It was fun, Trey. Always fun being on. So once again, thanks to Greg Olson for his time and kicking off Season 6 of Half Forgotten History. I'm telling you, he's going to be a superstar in the booth. I hope we listen to him call games for a long, long time. Coming up next week, got another Hall of Famer for you coming your way in Half Forgotten History. He might have been the most graceful runner of all time. He never looked like he was running fast, but he piled up yards, and he still has the record for most rushing yards in a single season. It is legendary running back Eric Dickerson. And we also get into his time in college. Let's just say it was interesting in the 80s at SMU. We'll get into all of that next week on Half Forgotten History with Eric Dickerson. And thanks again to our friends over at Caesar Sportsbook. Remember to visit Caesars.com to see if sports betting is available where you live.